Section 33 of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I'm Drew Nelson. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1C, Section 33, Chapter 33, Part 3. During the course of this siege, Charles had taken St. Dissier, and finding the season much advanced, he began to hearken to treaty of peace with France, since all his schemes for subduing that kingdom were likely to prove abortive. In order to have a pretense for deserting his ally, he sent a messenger to the English camp, requiring Henry immediately to fulfill his engagements, and to meet him with his army before Paris. Henry replied that he was too far engaged in the siege of Bologna to raise it with honor, and that the emperor himself had first broken the concert by besieging St. Dissier. This answer served Charles as a sufficient reason for concluding a peace with Francis at Crepy, where no mention was made of England. He stipulated to give Flanders as a dowry to his daughter, whom he agreed to marry to the Duke of Orleans, Francis's second son, and Francis, in return, withdrew his troops from Piedmont and Savoy, and renounced all claim to Milan, Naples, and other territories in Italy this peace so advantageous to francis was procured partly by the decisive victory obtained in the beginning of the campaign by the count of anguillen over the imperialists at sarasol in piedmont partly by the emperor's greatest desire to turn his arms against the protestant princes in germany charles ordered his troops to separate from the english in picardy and henry finding himself obliged to raise the siege of montreuil returned into england this campaign served to the populace as a matter of great triumph but all men of sense concluded that the king had as in all his former military enterprises made at a great expense an acquisition which was of no importance the war with scotland meanwhile was conducted feebly and with various success Sir Ralph Evers, now Lord Evers, and Sir Brian Latoon made an inroad into that kingdom, and having laid waste to the counties of Tiviotdale and the Merse, they proceeded to the Abbey of Cottingham, which they took possession of and fortified. The governor assembled an army of eight thousand men in order to dislodge them from this post, but he had no sooner opened his batteries before the place then a sudden panic seized him. He left the army and fled to Dunbar. He complained of the mutiny of his troops, and pretended apprehensions lest they should deliver him into the hands of the English. But his own unwarlike spirit was generally believed to have been the motive of this dishonorable flight. The Scottish army, upon the departure of their general, fell into confusion, and had not Angus, with a few of his retainers, brought off the cannon and protected their rear the english might have gained great advantages over them evers elated with this success boasted to henry that he had conquered all scotland to the fourth 
and he claimed a reward for this important service. The Duke of Norfolk, who knew with what difficulty such acquisitions would be maintained against a warlike enemy, advised the king to grant him, as his reward, the conquests of which he boasted so highly. The next inroad made by the English showed the vanity of Evers's hopes. This general led about five thousand men into Tiviotdale, and was employed in ravaging that country, when intelligence was brought to him that some Scottish forces appeared near the Abbey of Melross. Angus had roused the governor to more activity, and a proclamation being issued for assembling the troops of the neighboring counties, a considerable body had repaired thither to oppose the enemy. Norman Leslie, son of the Earl of Roths, had also joined the army with some volunteers from Fife, and he inspired courage into the whole, as well by this accession of force, as by his personal bravery and intrepidity. In order to bring their troops to the necessity of a steady defense, the Scottish leaders ordered all their cavalry to dismount, and they resolved to wait, on some high grounds near Ancrum, the assault of the English. The English, whose past successes had taught them too much to despise the enemy, thought, when they saw the Scottish horses led off the field, that the whole army was retiring, and they hastened to attack them. The Scots received them in good order, and being favored by the advantage of the ground, as well as by the surprise of the English, who expected no resistance, they soon put them to flight, and pursued them with considerable slaughter. Evers and Latoon were both killed, and above a thousand men were made prisoners. In order to support the Scots in this war, Francis some time after sent over a body of auxiliaries, to the number of three thousand five hundred men, under the command of Montgomery, Lord of Lorges. Reinforced by these succors, the governor assembled an army of fifteen thousand men at Haddington, and marched thence to ravage the east borders of England. He laid all waste wherever he came, and having met with no considerable resistance, he retired into his own country and disbanded his army. The Earl of Hertford, in revenge, committed ravages on the middle and west marches, and the war on both sides was signalized rather by the ills inflicted on the enemy than by any considerable advantage gained by either party. The war likewise between France and England was not distinguished this year by any memorable event. Francis had equipped a fleet of above two hundred sail, besides galleys, and having embarked some land forces on board, he sent them to make a descent in England. They sailed to the Isle of Wight, where they found the English fleet lying at anchor in St. Helens. It consisted not of above a hundred sail and the admiral thought it most advisable to remain in that road in hopes of drawing the french into the narrow channels and the rocks which were unknown to them the two fleets cannonaded each other for two days and except the sinking of the mary rose one of the largest ships of the english fleet the damage on both sides was inconsiderable Francis's chief intention in equipping so great a fleet was to prevent the English from throwing succors into Bologna, which he resolved to besiege, and for that purpose he ordered a fort to be built, by which he intended to block up the harbor. After a considerable loss of time and money, 
the fort was found so ill-constructed that he was obliged to abandon it, and though he had assembled on that frontier an army of near 40,000 men, he was not able to effect any considerable enterprise. Henry, in order to defend his possessions in France, had levied 14,000 Germans who, having marched into Florines in the bishopric of Liege, found that they could advance no farther. The emperor would not allow them a passage through his dominions. They received intelligence of a superior army on the side of France ready to intercept them. Want of occupation and of pay soon produced a mutiny among them, and having seized the English commissaries as a security for arrears, they retreated into their own country. There seems to have been some want of foresight in this expensive armament. The great expenses of these two wars maintained by Henry obliged him to summon a new parliament. The commons granted him a subsidy, payable in two years, of two shillings a pound on land. The spirituality voted him six shillings a pound. But the parliament, apprehensive lest more demands should be made upon them, endeavored to save themselves by a very extraordinary liberality of other people's property. By one vote they bestowed on the king all the revenues of the universities, as well as of the chantries, free chapels, and hospitals. Henry was pleased with this concession, as it increased his power, but he had no intention to rob learning of all her endowments, and he soon took care to inform the universities that he meant not to touch their revenues. Thus these ancient and celebrated establishments owe their existence to the generosity of the king, not to the protection of the servile and prostitute parliament. The prostitute spirit of the parliament further appeared in the preamble of a statute, in which they recognized the king to have always been, by the word of God, supreme head of the Church of England, and acknowledged that archbishops, bishops, and other ecclesiastical persons have no manner of jurisdiction but by his royal mandate. To him alone, say they, and such persons as he shall appoint, full power and authority is given from above to hear and determine all manner of causes ecclesiastical, and to correct all manner of heresies, errors, vices, and sins whatsoever. No mention is here made of the concurrence of a convocation, or even of a parliament. His proclamations are in effect acknowledged to have not only the force of law, but the authority of revelation, and by his royal power he might regulate the actions of men control their words, and even direct their inward sentiments and opinions. The king made in person a speech to the parliament on proroguing them, in which, after thanking them for their loving attachment to him, which, he said, equaled what was ever paid by their ancestors to any king of England, he complained of their dissensions, disputes, and animosities in religion. He told them that the several pulpits were become a kind of batteries against each other, and that one preacher called another heretic an Anabaptist, which was retaliated by the opprobrious appellations of papist and hypocrite, that he had permitted his people the use of the scriptures, not in order to furnish them with materials for disputing and railing, but that he might enable them to inform their consciences and instruct their children and families, that it grieved his heart to find how that precious jewel was prostituted by being introduced into the conversation of every alehouse and tavern, and employed as a pretense for decrying the spiritual and legal pastors, 
and that he was sorry to observe that the word of God, while it was the object of so much anxious speculation, had very little influence on their practice, and that, though an imaginary knowledge so much abounded, charity was daily going to decay. The king gave good advice, but his own example, by encouraging speculation and dispute, was ill-fitted to promote that peaceable submission of opinion which he recommended. Henry employed in military preparations the money granted by Parliament, and he sent over the Earl of Hertford and Lord Lyle, the Admiral, to Calais, with a body of nine thousand men, two-thirds of which consisted of foreigners. Some skirmishes of small moment ensued with the French, and no hopes of any considerable progress could be entertained by either party. Henry, whose animosity against Francis was not violent, had given sufficient vent to his humor by this short war, and, finding that, from his great increase in corpulence and decay in strength, he could not hope for much longer life, he was desirous of ending a quarrel which might provide dangerous to his kingdom during a minority. Francis, likewise on his part, was not averse to peace with England, because, having lately lost his son, the Duke of Orleans, he revived his ancient claim upon Milan, and foresaw that hostilities must soon, on that account, break out between him and the emperor. Commissioners, therefore, having met at Campay, a small place between Ardra and Guinée, the articles were soon agreed on, and the peace signed by them. The chief conditions were that Henry should retain Bologna during eight years, or till the former debt due by Francis should be paid. This debt was settled at two millions of livres. Besides a claim of five hundred thousand livres, which was afterwards to be adjusted. Francis took care to comprehend Scotland in the treaty. Thus all that Henry obtained by a war which cost him above one million three hundred and forty thousand pounds sterling was a bad and a chargeable security for a debt, which was not a third of the value. The king, now freed from all foreign wars, had leisure to give his attention to domestic affairs, particularly to the establishment of uniformity in opinion, on which he was so intent. Though he allowed an English translation of the Bible, he had hitherto been very careful to keep the Mass in Latin, but he was at last prevailed on to permit that the litany, a considerable part of the service, should be celebrated in the vulgar tongue, and by this innovation he excited anew the hopes of the reformers, who had been somewhat discouraged by the severe law of the six articles. One petition of the new litany was a prayer to save us, quote, from the tyranny of the bishop of Rome, and from all his detestable enormities, end quote. Cranmer employed his credit to draw Henry into further innovations, and he took advantage of Gardiner's absence, who was sent on an embassy to the emperor. But Gardiner, having written to the king that, if he carried his opposition against the Catholic religion to greater extremities, Charles threatened to break off all commerce with him, the success of Cranmer's projects was for some time retarded. Cranmer lost this year the most sincere and powerful friend that he possessed at court, 
Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, the Queen Dowager of France, consort to Suffolk, had died some years before. This nobleman is one instance that Henry was not altogether incapable of a cordial and steady friendship, and Suffolk seems to have been worthy of the favor which, from his earliest youth, he had enjoyed with his master. The king was sitting in council when informed of Suffolk's death, and he took the opportunity both to express his own sorrow for the loss and to celebrate the merits of the deceased. He declared that during the whole course of their friendship his brother-in-law had never made one attempt to injure an adversary and had never whispered a word to the disadvantage of any person. Quote, is there any of you, my lords, who can say as much? End quote. When the king subjoined these words, he looked around in all their faces and saw that confusion which the consciousness of secret guilt naturally threw upon them. Cranmer himself, when bereaved of this support, was the more exposed to these cabals which the opposition in party and religion joined to the usual motives of interest rendered so frequent among Henry's ministers and counsellors. The Catholics took hold of the king by his passion for orthodoxy, and they represented to him that, if his laudable zeal for enforcing the truth met with no better success, it was altogether owing to the primate, whose example and encouragement were, in reality, the secret supports of heresy. Henry, seeing the point at which they aimed, feigned a compliance, and desired the council to make inquiry into Cranmer's conduct, promising that, if he were found guilty, he should be committed to prison and brought to condign punishment. Everybody now considered the primate as lost, and as his old friends from interested views, as well as the opposite party from animosity, began to show him marks of neglect and disregard, he was obliged to stand several hours among the lackeys at the door of the council chamber before he could be admitted, and when he was at last called in, he was told that they had determined to send him to the tower. Cranmer said that he appealed to the king himself, and finding his appeal disregarded, he produced a ring, which Henry had given him as a pledge of favor and protection. The council were confounded, and when they came before the king, he reproved them in the severest terms, and told them that he was well acquainted with Cranmer's merit, as well as with their malignity and envy, but he was determined to crush all their cabals, and to teach them by the severest discipline, since gentle methods were ineffectual, a more dutiful concurrence in promoting his service. Norfolk, who was Cranmer's capital enemy, apologized for their conduct, and said, that their only intention was to set the primate's innocence in a full light by bringing him to an open trial, and Henry obliged them all to embrace him as a sign of their cordial reconciliation. The mild temper of Cranmer rendered this agreement more sincere on his part than is usual in such forced compliances. But though Henry's favor for Cranmer rendered fruitless all accusations against him, his pride and peevishness, irritated by his declining state of health, impelled him to punish with fresh severity all others who presumed to entertain a different opinion from himself, particularly in the capital point of the real presence. Anne Askew, a young woman of merit as well as beauty, 
who had great connections with the chief ladies at court and with the queen herself, was accused of dogmatizing on that delicate article, and Henry, instead of showing indulgence to the weakness of her sex and age, was but the more provoked that a woman should dare to oppose his theological sentiments. She was prevailed on by Bonner's menaces to make a seeming recantation, but she qualified it with some reserves which did not satisfy that zealous prelate. She was thrown into prison, and she there employed herself in composing prayers and discourses by which she fortified her resolution to endure the utmost extremity rather than relinquish her religious principles. She even wrote to the king and told him that as to the Lord's Supper, she believed as much as Christ himself had said of it, and as much of his divine doctrine as the Catholic Church had required. But while she could not be brought to acknowledge an assent to the king's explications, this declaration availed her nothing, and was rather regarded as a fresh insult. The Chancellor Riothesley, who had succeeded oddly, and who was much attached to the Catholic party, was sent to examine her with regard to her patrons at court, and the great ladies who were in correspondence with her, but she maintained a laudable fidelity to her friends, and would confess nothing. She was put to the torture in the most barbarous manner, and continued still resolute in preserving secrecy. Some authors add an extraordinary circumstance, that the Chancellor, who stood by, ordered the Lieutenant of the Tower to stretch the rack still farther, but that officer refused compliance. The Chancellor menaced him, but met with a new refusal, upon which that magistrate, who was otherwise a person of merit, but intoxicated with religious zeal, put his own hand to the rack, and drew it so violently that he almost tore her body asunder. Her constancy still surpassed the barbarity of her persecutors, and they found all their efforts to be baffled. She was then condemned to be burned alive, and being so dislocated by the rack that she could not stand, she was carried to the stake in a chair. Together with her were conducted Nicholas Belenian, a priest, John Lassels of the king's household, and John Adams, a tailor, who had been condemned for the same crime to the same punishment. They were all tied to the stake, and in that dreadful situation the Chancellor sent to inform them that their pardon was ready drawn and signed, and should instantly be given them if they would merit it by a recantation. They only regarded this offer as a new ornament to their crown of martyrdom, and they saw with tranquillity the executioner kindle the flames which consumed them. Riothesley did not consider that this public and noted situation interested their honor the more to maintain a steady perseverance. End of section 33, chapter 33, part 3. I'm Drew Nelson in Atlanta, Georgia. Recording December 12, 2012.